For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Saturday, everyone. A little blurry there. Let me see if I can get that focused up. And welcome to another edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Uh, this happens sometimes on a Saturday night for some reason, uh, but I have the ability to focus. Shouldn't life be so simple? Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating? I'm celebrating life, the arts, and theater. And I'm also celebrating this amazing book, Broadway General Manager. And not only am I celebrating this incredible book, I am celebrating the man who wrote it. And that's Peter Bojo. And I'm so excited that you are here this evening, Peter. And as before we start in, I want to talk about, uh, first of all, uh, what it is like to go to the theater. Because there's the excitement of going to the theater. I was listening to a TED Talk a couple of days ago about the theater and what theater is and what theater isn't. And some people think that theater is a building. Some people think that theater is an experience. Some people think you go to the theater and you sit back and you're transported on a journey. Some people think that theater is a place that you go to and you fall asleep. Some people think it's a, a myriad of things that it's just so many things. But we take for granted when we go to the theater, when we buy our tickets, and I've got several of my old Broadway tickets sitting right here. We take for granted that when we buy our tickets and we go to the theater, that that curtain, uh, whether it's a real curtain or a proverbial curtain, is going to go up and the actors are going to be there and magic is going to happen for the next hour or so. But we've been taught in the last year and a half that it doesn't always happen when you think it's going to happen. And you know better than anyone that it doesn't always, it takes a journey and a whole lot of people to get them there. And you have been on both sides of the footlights and you have been uh, steering the ship, if you, as you will. Uh, and we're gonna talk about all those things this evening. I am so thrilled that you are here tonight. Uh, I have enjoyed uh, this journey that I have been on since I have been reading this book. And I wanna begin tonight as I begin every show by asking who or what are you celebrating tonight besides this amazing book? Oh, thank you, Richard. Well, I'm thrilled to be here, firstly. Uh, I'm celebrating life, uh, friendship, uh, my wonderful wife, uh, health, and the return of theater. And those are wonderful things to celebrate. Let's talk about friendships. Let's talk about our dear friend, Annarine Barr, who brought us together. And let's also uh, do a shout out to Jenny Lynn Stewart, who's watching the show, Mutual Friends. Um, what does friendship mean to you? I mean, you were in a profession uh, where uh, I think of the mask of comedy and tragedy because uh, there are duplicitous masks 
in this business. And then there are true masks of true friendships. And you have been very, very fortunate because you have developed some real friendships in this business. And when I've mentioned the fact that you're going to be on this show, um, everybody uh, has uh, is excited about the fact that you're here tonight. Uh, you have an incredible pristine reputation in this business. Uh, do you have any clue as to why you have, I mean, what was your secret navigating these waters these many years in this profession? I, I don't, I don't know if I had a secret. I, I try to do my job well, and I, I try to do it honorably. And I, I try to be straightforward with people. Sometimes as a general manager, you have to tell people things they don't particularly want to hear, like, no, you can't take vacation then. Mm -hmm. um, but I always tried to treat people with the genuine respect I felt for them and to be straight with them. Well, that's wonderful. Um, I start my shows with a secret question, and it's a secret question because I haven't even looked at it. So uh, I don't even know where this is going to take us tonight. And, uh, and I, you know, uh, do you use social media a lot? Let's start there because this question has happens to deal with social media. Do I use, use Facebook a lot. I, I... Okay. So then maybe you will be able to answer this question. What is your most used emoji? Uh, I kind of like thumbs up. Good. Me too. Uh, so I'm going to start at the beginning. Uh, when I do, those who have seen my shows know that I always ask for a photo of a five-year-old and your five-year-old self. And the reason I ask for the five-year-old self uh, is because I think the five-year-old self is the purest self. Uh, to me, that is before life pressure is put on you before peer pressure is put on you, before teachers start telling you who you should or should not be. So as I sat down to begin reading your book, and there it is at the very beginning of your book, you begin with five years old uh, when you are in your production of The Nutcracker. My, and my first I, sentence. Yes, your very first sentence in the book. And I said, boy, is he making my job easy for me. <laughs> because a lot of people, you know, I've had people say to me, oh, I don't remember what I was doing when I was five years old, but you start right there in the very first sentence. Here you are, uh, five years old. Is this five, you at five? Uh, you know, pretty close to five. I, I couldn't say for sure if I'm exactly five, but thereabouts. So, if I'm not mistaken, you grew up in Tarrytown. Mm -hmm. So you grew up very in very close proximity to the theater you did not grow up in an artistic household. No, most of my family are scientific PhDs. Uh, but you had the opportunity to be in the Nutcracker. You are not a dancer, you say yourself. <laughs> yourself. Um, but what are your earliest memories of art in your house, whether it be uh, the art of the theater, music? Uh, were you surrounded by that? or was your outlet in school? I, I was definitely surrounded by it at home. I feel very grateful. My parents were both uh, native born Hungarians from Budapest and they were very cultured. They grew up going to classical concerts. 
Uh, they loved the theater. They loved opera. And uh, they took me and my two siblings to various art forms when it was age appropriate. So we were introduced to theater, museums, concerts of classical music. Books were highly valued. So I'm, I'm terribly grateful to my parents that I grew up in an atmosphere where all those things were truly valued. Now, years later, uh, you, and I'm going to mention him because uh, Frank Langella is someone that you did end up working with much later, but he mentioned in his uh, autobiography uh, this moment of stepping from the darkness into the light, uh, when, which is one of my favorite uh, images. Uh, do you remember that first moment that you stepped from the darkness into the light on stage and what that experience was like for you? That's a toughie, you know, that this this very first production I was in when I was in kindergarten, um, you know, probably took place in the cafeteria or someplace <laughs> without much stage without lighting. Much darkness. <laughs> right. It wasn't like there was a spotlight on me suddenly. Um, but it was a wonderful feeling. I, I certainly remember that. And it it made me want to always uh, act and sing also uh, for many, many years. And uh, I mean, we're, we are going to give away a copy of your book tonight. Uh, and uh, our word, our phrase for tonight is personal fulfillment. And obviously the theater fills you. Uh, what was it about the theater that originally drew you? And we're going to talk about the many hats that you wore that got you to the uh, position of uh, being a Broadway general manager, because that, of course, was not the road that you set out on. Exactly, exactly. Sometimes... Life takes you by surprise. And that's not a bad thing, necessarily. No, it's not. I, I don't think that there are, first of all, I don't believe there are any accidents. Uh, and and that is going to take me to my next question in a moment. But uh, personal fulfillment of the theater, what is it personally that first attracted you? And is it still that same feeling that still pulls you in? Well, the theater always held a kind of, magic for me and enchantment. It was a place to go and, and out of the darkness comes some wonderful story that moves you or entertains you. I have a theory that when one is young and very naive and doesn't really know anything about theater, what you primarily see are the actors on stage and you think, oh, oh, I want to be an actor. And you, you're, you may not even be aware that the words they're speaking aren't their own. You just see these people and these characters. And that's, I think for many people, that's the initial draw. And then over time, if you stay involved with theater, you realize that, uh, you know, the actors may get the lion's share of the glory, but someone has written their words and someone has designed their clothes and someone has directed them. And that there were all these other niches, which are, equally important. You couldn't have theater without all these people doing their job in their specialized area. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a wonderful thing. If you, if you initially start out hoping to be an actor, because that's all you can visualize. And over time you realize, oh, you know, I'm not sure this is really a great fit for me. There were still many other ways to be integrally involved with theater. So 
as I mean, originally, again, you wanted to be an actor. Uh, you pursued it. Uh, and as time went on and opportunities were coming your way with, you know, school productions and other uh, outlets, um, being with such close proximity to New York, were you venturing into New York to see Broadway shows and off-Broadway shows and uh, other uh, concerts and things in New York City as well? Absolutely. As soon as, as I was deemed old enough to ride the train by myself, it was just a suburban run from Terrytown to, to Grand Central. I would go in often with high school friends and we'd see a matinee together. And uh, that was a great thing, living within commuting distance of Manhattan. And as as things were going on and your your careers, uh, you know, your what was the defining moment for you when you went to your parents? I'm assuming that there was a moment and you said, hey, I think I want to be an actor. And if that happened, what was the response from your family when you told them this is the direction that you wanted to go in? Well, I don't think they were surprised because I'd been performing in school plays since kindergarten, pretty, you know, consistently all the way through high school and then college and going to the theater and reading about the theater. Clearly this was my, my passion. My parents were very supportive, but I don't think they were very, I don't think they were thrilled uh, I was a good student academically, so I had the potential to do a variety of things. Um, but they never said to me, oh, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. Uh, wouldn't you rather go to medical school or become an attorney? They kind of um, kept kept mum on that on that front. So, so but but that aside, they were as supportive as they could be. Now, I want to talk about the turning point in your life because you are in the theater. You're uh, all, and then all of a sudden, you end up uh, going to work for, uh, and I want to make sure that I'm getting the facts right in the uh, from the book, uh, the meeting with Albert Poland. Uh, it's a dear friend. I'm uh, looking forward to spending an afternoon with him very soon. Uh, but wonderful. Yes. Uh, so you um, you meet Albert Poland and how everything shifts in your world. And it also shifts in your consciousness of, wait a minute, I think there, there's another direction that I want to go. And I want to talk about the detail of the way that you map things out in this book, because uh, it, it's just absolutely amazing in terms of budgeting and all these things, which, Peter, I just don't have a mind for. But you, it's it's all there. And was that that analytical side, was that always there for you? It was. It, it was. I'd always been good at math. Um, the, the big shift, the kind of seismic shift, actually occurred just before I met Albert. Meeting him was a result of the shift that had already occurred. I, I produced an original play I'd found that had a really fascinating, challenging role in it that I was determined to play. And I realized the best way to make sure I got cast and that the show got on was to produce it myself as, as a simple actor's equity showcase, mm -hmm. nothing, nothing too grand. Mm -hmm. 
but I um, did a lot of research and I, I hired a general manager and a press agent and an attorney, you know, a wonderful support team. And I succeeded in getting the show on and playing the role that I had dreamed of playing. And much to my surprise, at the end of the process, when the dust had settled, I realized that I really felt I was better at this producing side than I was at the performing side. And uh, in a way, that was an incredible blessing because it was it was much easier for me to let go of identifying myself as an actor when I already had a thought what I could switch to. So I, I said, you know, I really, uh, I really enjoy this producing side. I'd like to learn more about it. Uh, but I quickly realized that most producers, commercial producers work very closely with someone called a general manager. And I didn't really understand what they did, but I understood that it was key. And that's when I decided to go to work for a general manager. And I, I met Albert, who was such an important part of my life. Well, I want to break a few things down here. We're going to uh, dissect this story a little bit more. Um, first of all, let's talk about what a Broadway, uh, what a general manager truly is. Some people may have misconceptions uh, of what a general manager does or does not do. Can you break that down for those who don't know and give us a little sense of what you actually knew about that uh, world uh, at this point in your life? what you learned, what you didn't know, and as the pieces of the puzzle are starting to fall into place for you. Sure. Well, I, I didn't know anything about it when I started. <laughs> I just knew that that this was an important position. And I, I knew I didn't want to be a dilettante producer. If, if I were going on to become a producer one day, I wanted to be someone who was really knowledgeable, not just someone uh, who could raise a lot of money. Um, so I, I felt it would be wise to go to work for a general manager. And um, I like to say that it, it takes me in my book 178 pages to fully explain what it is a general manager does. But uh, in a nutshell, uh, a general manager is the chief financial and business um, support for the producer. So uh, the first thing I would do is budget a show for a producer and tell them how much money they need to raise. I would then uh, negotiate almost all the contracts for the show in accordance with the budget and in consultation with the producer. Uh, any aspect of the show that has a financial implication, I would be involved with. Mm -hmm. My office would... Um, collect the money that comes in from investors and uh, deposit it in a bank, in a bank account, which we created for the show. We would create the official legal entity that is the producing entity for the show, normally a LLC. Uh, we would uh, generate the weekly payroll, make sure people get paid, make sure uh, union benefits are paid on behalf of everyone, pension, health, annuity, dues. Uh, I would oversee advertising and marketing and kind of keep track wherever possible of how much various endeavors, like let's say a direct mail 
mailing would cost and what the return was and what, what the return on investment was for that endeavor. I would do a lot of financial forecasting, track the advance sales, break it down by week, break those weeks down by performance, see which days of the week might be weak or which sections, uh, seating sections of the house might not be selling as well. I would hire the crew. I would fire people if necessary. I mm -hmm. would, uh, if we were so fortunate that operating profits would accrue, I would generate profit distributions to investors. I would uh, see that royalties are calculated accurately. Really anything that had a business or financial element that had a cost associated with it, I would be uh, very deeply involved with it and ask for my advice. So after your initial uh, Broadway uh, producing uh, debut, if you will, uh, the, the show opens, uh, you make this uh, life-altering decision that you feel that you're better suited on this side of the fence than this side of the fence. Uh, you decide that you're going to go in that direction. Um, then you start looking for the right place for you to go, which led you to uh, towards Albert Pollan. Uh, so you had gotten the advice that if after reaching out, if they don't come to you, you go to them. Am I getting this correctly? Yeah, well, I, I uh, heard that Catherine Albert Pollan's office was, was looking to hire a new sort of entry-level person because he had two shows in development almost simultaneously. So the mounting of a show uh, is the most labor intensive and that's when an office is most likely to want to bring on additional people. So I contacted the office. I had an interview. I felt it had gone well. I was told uh, they should make a decision in about a week. Uh, but after a week, I hadn't heard anything. And I uh, called the office and it was clear they were extremely busy and the receptionist at the time sounded quite harried. And he said, Albert was on a line and he couldn't speak to me. And could I call back? Um, and I, so they hung up and I thought about it and I remembered something I had read somewhere that Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. And she said, uh, never, never write or call when you can go in person. And so I thought, okay, I, I I should go there. So I just got up and I went down to Albert's office and I stood in the open doorway and phones were ringing off the hook and people were extremely busy. And Albert sort of looked up and saw me standing in the doorway and said, uh, you know, oh, thank God, when can you start? And I said, right now. And I sat down and I picked up a phone and said, you know, Albert Poland's office. Uh, and then, you know, the poor man was stuck with me for about five years after that. But, uh, I saw my opening and I went for it. You went for it. And I love that about you. I've got a question here. Uh, this is from Danielle. She said she would be interested to know if there was ever a show that almost didn't see the light of day because of fundraising and how you pulled it off. Well, uh, it's not the general manager's job to raise the money. That is the producer's job. Um, do you think she means almost didn't make it, but finally did or almost didn't make it and never made it. Daniel, do you want to answer that question? And we'll get back to that. And while we're waiting for that answer, I want to get back to Albert Pollan again. Um, what did you learn from Albert Pollan 
uh, as both a mentor, as a colleague, as a friend that has, uh, she says yes, but I. Uh, yes to which? Yes to which of those. Uh, finally made it? That finally made it. Well, I'm trying to think which show it was. Legally, you're told that the entity that is established to to produce the show, let's say an LLC, that it it has to be. The wording is a little technical. I remember it. You have to be fully capitalized, at least to a minimum level that you've specified. Often, a show will will list a minimum threshold of capitalization formation and an upper threshold. But you have to reach at least that minimum level, um, no, no later than just before your first paid public performance. And I remember one show I was working on. You know, we were almost there, but we were still just a little bit short of that minimum threshold. And literally, um, our producers who were, you know, working night and day to raise the money got that final investor on the day of our first preview. And I remember literally running to the bank, and I'm not kidding, running to the bank myself with that last check and a deposit slip. And I like got into the door about 3.05, panting. And I said, uh, you know, uh, I've got to make this deposit. I've got to make this deposit. Uh, you know, can I still do this? And they said, oh, yes, no problem. We'll make this deposit, but it'll have to be stamped as of tomorrow. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. <laughs> this, de this deposit has to be recorded as today. <laughs> and... Um, you know, they were able to do it for me. But, you know, there I was practically on my knees pleading with the bank, just deposit this check, date it today, please, God. Um, that was the closest I've ever come to a show that uh, almost didn't make it, but did. Pulled wow. it off at the last possible moment. But getting back to my question with Peter, uh, with, uh, you know, regarding Albert Poland, uh, the le the life lessons that you learned from him, because, I mean, talk about a brilliant man. He also has a, a wonderful book called Stages, yes. uh, which he's been on this show, and uh, it's available on demand on uh, YouTube, so go and check out the interview. Uh, but uh, lessons that you learned from him. And then I want to talk to you about the evolution of uh, the Broadway producer and how that has evolved or changed in your lifetime in the theater. Sure. Well, I, you know, I learned so much from Albert. He's uh, such a, a smart, savvy, hardworking man. Um, it's hard to pick out individual things, but I my longest apprenticeship was in his office. I started as the receptionist. I became the second assistant. I graduated to the first assistant. I became the office manager. I uh, was sponsored for the ATPAM apprentice program, which takes at least two years. I eventually became an ATPAM full company manager and company managed a lot of shows with Albert as my general manager work, working in his office. Uh, I uh, became his associate. 
um, you know, it was a wonderful long period, but, um, you know, there comes a point in any relationship like this where, you know, assuming I didn't want to remain an associate my whole life, it was time for me to leave his office and strike out on my own and, and, uh, try to become a general manager myself, which in a way, although it seems silly to compare a novice with someone like Albert Poland, you know, is competition. I was hanging out, I was trying to hang out my shingle as a, as a general manager, but, um, you know, Albert was wonderful to me and wished me the best. And, uh, it just was time. It was time to leave. I mean, what was the deciding uh, factor when you knew that it was time to move on for you? I mean, because you had this long fruitful relationship in his office, obviously you knew that it was time to move on. Uh, we all know that there are moments in our lives where it's time to move on in order for us to grow. What was that deciding moment for you? Well, I, I was basically uh, his in-house company manager. If he had more than one show, he'd have to bring out other people. But but normally I was offer, offered a show. Um, and at a certain point, I got married. And then uh, eventually we had a child. And a company manager... Very successful actor, I might say. I'm sorry? Very successful actor. Thank and they. You. Yes, in, uh, in Moulin Rouge in London right now. So starring, <laughs> starring, starring, starring. His first yeah, job. Uh -huh. Yes, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It's it's really thrilling to see him have this opportunity. But a, a company manager's schedule is extremely rigorous. They work six days a week. They have to be at the theater every performance eight times a week. That means twice on a Saturday, twice on a Wednesday. Depending on if the show schedule, you may be at the theater on a Sunday. Uh, and also, because I was his associate, I think I was working seven days a week. You know, if I wasn't, if I was on a show schedule Tuesday through Sunday, I was also in the office on a Monday. And it just, um, I, I wanted to have more responsibility. Uh, than just being a company manager, which I think is the hardest job in all of the commercial theater. I have such respect for company managers and I spent many, many years company managing. Um, I, I wanted uh, more responsibility and I didn't want to be tied to a show schedule all the time. I, I was hoping for, you know, once a show was out of production and had opened and settled that basically I'd have a, Monday through Friday, 10 to 6 job. Of course, theater is never quite that cut and dry, but compared to a company manager, um, you know, it gave me a little bit more room for a life. I want to talk about the evolution of a Broadway producer now versus what they were when you first began in this business, because the lines seem to be very blurred for me from where I stand, as uh, there are people who raise money in the theater now who call themselves producers, who, with all due respect, some of them don't seem to have the slightest clue as to what the theater is about. Uh, with all due respect. Uh, and uh, and then there are those who are in the trenches who live, eat, and breathe the theater. Uh, 
what are the things that you've seen change and grow in the theater in your lifetime that you absolutely embrace? And what are the things that you've seen change in the theater that you still have a hard time accepting? Sure. Well, I don't think anyone would argue that over time, theater has only gotten more expensive and uh, the amount of money needed to be raised to produce a show has only gone up and up and up and up. So uh, over the years, you, you know, decades ago, in the 60s or so, you, you had normally one person, let's say David Merrick, David Merrick, who was the producer. And then he had a whole lot of investors who knew they were investors and they were vital to a show getting on, but they didn't, they didn't have any other pretensions. As the uh, capitalizations for shows soared, uh, you know, a play now can cost, I'm sure, well over $4 million. And musicals, you know, if it's a big musical, 16, 18, we won't talk about the exceptions like Spider-Man, but just sort of a typical musical. It's a huge amount of money. And uh, as a consequence, producers, and I'm now going to start to call them lead producers, because that's really what we think of as a producer. Mm -hmm. And let me digress a moment. A lead producer is someone who is in charge, has the vital decision-making power to close a show. They choose the vehicle. They give a lot of thought to who would be the right director for that project, not just a famous name, but who has the sensibility to be the right person to be at the artistic helm of that show. Um, they're deeply involved in casting with the director, of course, but, but the producer has right of approval, uh, you know, choice of designers, uh, a lead producer really is in the trenches. But as it's become more and more expensive to produce a show, producers have found that an effective way of finding and rewarding either big investors or big fundraisers, people who raise large chunks of money, is to give them above the title credit as a producer. And if you look carefully at a Broadway poster that has a lot of names above the title, there's always a top line, which maybe has one, two, or three names. Those are the lead producers, mm -hmm. um, the people making the decisions and really uh, responsible for creating the artistic venture. And all those other names on the lines below are people who are rewarded with credit for coming up with a big chunk of money, often a quarter million dollars or a half million. They could either invest it themselves or collect a group of investors. And one of the things that has annoyed me over the years as a general manager is the perception that many of those people who have helped raised a large sum of money, which is vital and very necessary and, and one should be very grateful for them. They don't, they often don't have a lot of humility. So you will hear them say, oh, I'm the producer of that show as if they really had input in shaping it or 
I mean, I've never heard someone say, oh, yes, I'm one of a large number of co-producers who helped finance this show. Exactly. Yes. You know, instead, they like to pass themselves off at cocktail parties as, you know, I want to be a producer. Um, it's like someone who's been an extra in a film who say, I was starring. Uh, I mean, I, I appeared with the name, the name with so-and-so in a, a certain film when if you blink, you miss them. You know? <laughs> yeah, it, and, and that's not to diminish their contributions. So. Their contribution is important, but but you don't want to wander over into delusion land. Um, you know, I, I, why not say I'm part of the producing team or I'm a co-producer? Or, oh, yes, I helped make that show happen. But to say I'm the producer is really... Uh, misleading and and inappropriate absolutely well again you know this book the first part of the book as you said it took you a while to explain what being a general manager is and you break this down and you break down in incredible detail all of the different aspects of what it takes to get a, a production on but i especially loved your chapter on the art of negotiation. Ah. And, no, that to me, that chapter alone is worth the price of the book because I love the fact that this business is all about collaboration and it's all about how we communicate with each other. And in the opening lines of that chapter, you talk about, you know, the fact that some you know, uh, producers, uh, managers and everything have reduced agents, stars every to tears. And, you know, and it's knowing how to talk to a company, knowing how to talk to uh, every person in the theater uh, to make it work like a well-oiled machine. And uh, kudos to you for that chapter, uh, yeah. because uh, I think that chapter uh, should be, with all due respect, the first chapter, <laughs> because it's it, it just got me. It's just incredible. Thank you for the oh, chapter. Thank you, Richard. Well, you know, a general manage, manager's job is not primarily a creative one, but I think possibly the one area where a GM can be creative is in negotiating. That's That's probably the most creative we get. Otherwise, we're quantifying things and making sure there's clear communication. Um, but negotiating allows, uh, negotiating allows for a little bit more creativity in your approach. And, and as I learned, there's no one correct style of negotiating. You have to find the style that really works for you, but I'm, but different people may, uh, have different styles. And again, the, the book was written a few years ago. Has, has there anything in the book really changed? I, I mean, I have a lot of technical books about Facebook and Twitter and social media, and things are changing so dramatically all the times that things that were in place a couple of years ago, no longer, I'll go back and read a chapter and I go, that doesn't apply anymore. Uh, <laughs> 
And I know that as far as certain things, when you talk about budgeting and things, uh, you have to, of course, uh, weigh in, uh, you know, inflation and other things that are in place. But are there any things, and would you go back and, you know, give us an updated version of the book? You know, the theater is constantly evolving and people are trying to find new ways to solve things or, you know, think of a chorus line. That was, I believe, the very first workshop. The whole concept of a workshop didn't mm -hmm. exist, but that was an economical way to begin to develop a musical. Um, things are always changing. I mean, I, I, I read, it was probably a couple years ago now with the pandemic that, you know, there's now very often a new creative position on a show if the subject matter deems it necessary and an intimacy consultant. Yes. Um, that didn't exist a couple years ago. And, you know, now there's there, it's felt that there's a need for that. That's something which a general management manager should be sure to budget for if they're dealing with a script that has intimate scenes, scenes that involve nudity. Um, it's just, it's always changing. And of course, in terms of advertising and marketing, social media is always changing. You know, first there was only Facebook and then suddenly there was Twitter and now there's Instagram and I guess TikTok is a huge thing. So cer certainly marketing people have to be savvy about those platforms and uh, which ones might be effective for reaching uh, a show's target audience. You know, I'm not sure if there were a revival of the gin game, I'm not sure that Instagram would be the best place uh, to spend your dollars, but I'm sure there are other shows where it would be ideal. I can't imagine uh, that being uh, promoted on TikTok. <laughs> But there's some creative mind out there who would figure out a way to make it happen. I know that would happen. I want to talk about some other aspects of your life uh, before we run out of time, because I could have you on. We could do a whole week uh, with everything that you do. First of all, I'm available. Uh, yes. Uh, well, uh, but you, you are so uh, busy with so many things. Let's first of all talk about uh, your son who is starring uh, in Moulin Rouge, uh, in the West End, uh, when was it inevitable that your son was going to go into the theater? And I think that he studied at RADA, and yes. he was the uh, one of the few American actors in solo. solo. He was the sole American they accepted his year. Yes. Wow. Wow. Amazing. So when he obviously wanted to go into the theater, uh, you have obviously had this love for the theater. What advice did you give to your son, if any? I didn't give him a lot of advice. Um, I know he was tempted after high school to audition for conservatory training. And, and again, he was a, a good academic student with a good head on his shoulders. And I did say to him, you know, I think it's really important that you go to college if you have the ability to do so. Um, as an actor, you are your own instrument. And the more you develop yourself and the more you read literature, study psychology, uh, 
history of art, whatever, those are all things that are going to enrich your instrument. Not to mention if you go to acting school at 18 or so, not that people don't, but you know, you have somewhat limited life experience to draw upon. You, you could maybe play an 18 year old, but you know, you're still very young. So I urge you to, uh, go to college first. I'm not trying to discourage you from becoming an actor and hoping you'll forget about it, but you can always go afterwards. And I think you'll be more mature and, and a, a richer instrument to draw on. So that was one of my major pieces of advice. And hopefully he took it. Although um, in his second semester of his sophomore year, he took a, uh, a, sem a semester abroad in London and unbeknownst to us then at age 19 or something, he, every day he had, he had to walk by the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. He literally like walked by them every single day on his way to class. And he finally said that to himself, this is ridiculous. And um, he went in and found out what was involved with auditioning and auditioned without telling us. And then uh, one day he called his mom and me kind of in a panic and said, uh, uh, dad, there's something, something we have to talk about. And of course, no parent likes to hear that. I thought like, oh my God. <laughs> yes, darling. Yes, darling. You can tell us anything. What is it, dear? And he said, well, I, I auditioned for the Royal Academy and I got a call back. And I said, that's great. What's the problem? He said, well, it's the day after my return flight. And I said, we'll change the ticket. Um, and Mercifully, he got very far up the ladder, but did not pass the very last rung. Because if he had, I would have accepted that this was his destiny and he would have to drop out of college and start training, which I wouldn't have been thrilled about. But the best of all possible worlds happened. He made it very far at an early age. He made a definite impression. They rejected him. He went back to Yale. He finished college. And when he reapplied, they all remembered him. They were all impressed that, you know, he hadn't given up. He was right back there. He was older. He was more mature. He had more to offer. And they accepted him. So it couldn't have worked out better. That is incredible. And uh, that was the cue for my next uh, point here. A dog's life. Hey. <laughs> right on cue. <laughs> thank you, Dickens. <laughs> Dickens, thank you, thank you, thank you. Is Dickens, uh, is Dickens right nearby? Uh, he's he's close by. I think he's... Oh, well. <laughs> he's looking out the door barking at something. That could not have been better. <laughs> so tell us about a dog's life. I want to talk about this. A collective of humorous tributes. Oh, uh, and I love the little face in the middle. Uh, Danny, bring Benny by. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, this is the second book I've written, which um, I had not intended to write, but uh, I'm a big dog lover and particularly a Scotty fanatic. Um, the Scottish Terrier in the middle of the top row was my prior dog, Hey, hello. A little wet. He was out in the backyard with the rain. No, he had a bath. <laughs> oh, he had a bath. He just got a bath. Show, show him the book. Yeah. 
Yes, he'll probably enjoy it if you read it to him. Yeah, Although we're gonna get the book. So um I had this beloved dog who's pictured on the top center cover, uh, who passed away a couple years ago. And it was very uh very heartrending. I he had to be put down. I held him in my arms. I, I didn't want him to pass alone. And any dog lover will know just how incredibly heart-wrenching that is. So I, I felt the need to write about him and to pay tribute to his life and to celebrate his life. And so uh, I sat down and started to write and it took the form of an obituary for this dog, albeit a very funny one because I, I really wanted to celebrate his life and, and, and discuss his quirks and his foibles. Uh, so I did this and I posted it on Facebook uh, and that was really all I had ever intended, but it got such an incredible response from all sorts of people. I, I basically wanted to let my friends know that my dog had died and I thought mm -hmm. this formal obituary with his portrait would take care of that. But I got such a response and so many people said, this is so wonderful and so loving and so hilarious and so touching. Um, you have to write a whole book. And I, was completely taken by surprise. And I came up with 12 reasons instantly why I couldn't possibly do that. And how could I write about someone else's dog I didn't know? And how many obituaries would it take? And I would have to make each one a little bit different. I couldn't say the same thing. And where was I going to get their stories? And, and finally, I said to myself, I gave myself permission. I said, why don't you just write one obituary at a time as these dog stories come to you? and see where it takes you. And maybe you'll fail at coming up with a book or maybe you won't, but just write one at a time and see where it goes. And that- well, I can't worked. wait to read that one. And we'll, we'll, we'll do another show. We'll, we'll get you and we'll get Bernadette Peters. We'll do a whole thing for uh, Broadway Barks and we'll, uh, we'll do a whole show. And that, uh, that would be wonderful. Bill, Bill Berloni is one of the uh, people who was kind enough to give me a, jacket quote um we've had bill on the show here bill you know just love him and uh you know the great work that he does uh we're going to give away uh your book broadway general manager and i'm going to bring uh this up here uh personal fulfillment uh and i hope that you'll sign the book for our winner tonight would you do that for us of, of course uh, that's great and what we do is i in our shows this is my homage to james lipton inside the actor's studio so I've got some questions here that I'm going to ask you. And uh, the first question that I'm going to ask you is, who do you gen uh, greatly admire in this business uh, and why? And uh, while you're, and uh, there are so many people, it's probably going to be difficult. Uh, I just want to give you, just look at some of the names that you've worked with. It's just amazing. So who do you greatly admire in this business and why? Well, do, do they have to still be living? Can it be uh, someone? They, uh, it could be anyone. You know, I would say Stephen Sondheim. Wow. Uh, I had the privilege of knowing him, working for him, producing a major benefit concert of Anyone Can Whistle at Carnegie Hall to benefit gay men's health crisis. And then... Um, that was an amazing concert, by the way. Oh, thank you. Amazing. Very exciting. And of course, Bernadette was 
so unbelievable in that. But then late in life, um, I, I, I first met Steve when I was in college at Yale, when I auditioned for the chorus of the original production of The Frogs, which took place around an exhibition swimming pool. Uh, and uh, I was accepted to be in, in the non-swimming chorus because the swimmers couldn't sing for obvious reasons. They would drown. <laughs> but I was in the chorus with uh, a couple of unknown graduate students. Um, I don't really know what's become of them, but one was named Meryl Streep, another was named Sigourney Weaver. Uh, and somewhere I have a photo of all of us in little togas standing around the rim of the swimming pool. But many, many years later, um, my son, Jamie, who was in London, entered the annual Sondheim competition there. And he so impressed Julia McKenzie mm. that on the spot, she donated her own money to create a special award just for him. Wow. And uh, my wife and I, happened to be there we we were we were sort of passing nearby that weekend so we were able to go to london to watch the finals and so i dropped steve an email afterwards saying how much we'd enjoy the afternoon and just in case he heard something about a young guy named jamie bodio that was my son and steve immediately answered saying oh i i've heard all about him julia called me right away and in all the years she's been you know, a special judge of this contest. She has never before singled out an individual to me. And then a little while after that, the the top brass at RADA came to New York, uh, both for to attend the showcase for their American actors for the profession. And then they used that occasion to present Steve with an honorary award. He had not been able to travel to London. So they were in New York and they asked Jamie, if he would sing the song he had sung at the competition, which I should add was a duet that somebody assigned to him alone. But they asked if he would sing that song to Steve at a private reception uh, at the British consulate's residence. And so wow. Jamie sang this song to Steve with Steve sitting four feet away from him. And... Um, it was a very moving evening. Steve told me he had been moved to tears and he very graciously, because he was a very private, quite shy person, uh, agreed to pose for a photo with Jamie on one side and, and me on the other. And I, I treasure that photo and I, I like to think of it as the past, the present and the future all colliding in one instance on a sofa. Wow. What a beautiful story. Thanks for sharing that. That's oh. great. Um, my next question is, what are you most proud of in this past week? In this past week? In this past week. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> what have I done that's particularly <laughs> praiseworthy? Oh, yoy, yoy. Um you couldn't have said in my entire career or um, in this past week, today is Saturday. Let me think. Um, <laughs> um, I think I tried very, I, I think I tried to be a good friend and to keep in touch 
with people and friends whom I know are, are having issues and struggling with things and following up and letting them know that I didn't just hear it and then forget about it, but, but, you know, say, how, how are you feeling? How is your sister doing? Uh, whatever to try to show real caring and, and friendship on a personal level. That's something to be proud of right there. Um, what is the best possible attitude to have in this business? <laughs> uh, the best possible attitude is definitely to be positive, supportive, and give your all, be hardworking, you know, don't, don't be snide, don't be a gossip, don't, uh, you know, if you're working on a project, it needs your 100% support. And, you know, even if you may not think it's the greatest thing, if you've, if you've accepted the job, you keep that to yourself and you don't breathe a word of it and you do everything in your might to make that show successful. Absolutely. I have a calendar that sits on my desk and I pulled, you know, and some of these I save. And this is one that I save as a page from this. I'm going to read this to you. And it says, having some quiet moments each day helps ground me back into my own energy and center myself. Uh, today's self-love action. Today, to center myself, I'll take a meditation break, go for a quick walk, sit in silence for a few minutes, play some soothing music, do a breathing exercise, or say a prayer to ground me back into my own energy. What do you do to ground yourself in those moments when you just need to pull yourself back in this chaotic world that we live in right now? I, I try to do stop, slow down, and almost literally uh, smell the roses. Uh, we're very fortunate. My wife and I have a, a place upstate uh, with with some land where things grow. And at the moment, the lilacs are coming into full mm -hmm. bloom. And I really try to stop and smell them. And, and we have a viburnum bush, which has a very strong scent. And I, I broke off a, a piece and put it in a little tiny uh, vase next to my bedside, on my bedside table, so I could really smell it and just be aware of nature and beauty, listening to bird song, going for walks with my new Scottish Terrier and just really being aware of his joy and exuberance when he scampers ahead of me and his tail is up or when he throws himself down on the grass and, and wriggles on his back in ecstasy. <laughs> and, um, just to appreciate those moments of life and, and, um, to, to really be grateful for them. But both my wife and I had some incidences last year, which uh, could have been potentially life-threatening mm. and thank God weren't. But I, I really try to be uh, mindful and grateful for each day and, and to think of it as a gift. Oh, well, thank God everything worked out. Um, are there certain behaviors of yours that you can't seem to shake? <laughs> um well you might want to ask my wife about this 
Next um, time she's on the air. Okay. Next week. Next uh, week. The counter, the counter view. Um, I can be compulsive. I really have to sort of watch to like not get all wrapped up and tight. Um, I can be addicted to Facebook and I have to sort of tell myself, okay, you've just checked. Why don't you wait two hours and then see if anything else has come up? Um, I mean, I think Facebook is set up to be addictive. It's oh, very, of course it is. Absolutely it is. With the little tones going off and whatever. But um, yeah, if I'm not careful, I can be addicted to that and obsessive. And, and uh, I need to work to say at times, okay, that's it for the, that's it for today. Um, tomorrow's another day. You know, I think one of the problems with being connected is that it's very easy for all boundaries to disappear and, and to do the same things every day, seven days a week, uh, at 11 o'clock at night before you go to bed, if you wake up early at 6 a.m., check your phone, and it's entirely within our power to say, you know what, I'm, I'm only going to go online from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Monday through Friday, and then I've left the office. But uh, in practice, that's very, very hard to do. Well, you can do it, though. When, uh, yeah, you can do it. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is possible. Yes. What is the most painful thing that you have ever gone through in this business? Uh, you don't have to name the specifics. Oh, I'm asking as a generality. And, and what got you through it? Well, it's easy. I, I was very closely involved with the uh, ill-fated Broadway musical of Rebecca. Uh, and believe me, that's a whole program or two. But yeah, that's, a, that's a month. At least that's a month, but it was the most devastating, heartbreaking experience. You know, you talk about Broadway as a field of broken dreams. Is is that the line? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that was Rebecca all over. So bizarre, all the different peregrinations. So. Um, really heartbreaking, really heartbreaking. You know, it, it, so many people tried so hard to make that show come to life and it deserved to come and to so life. So many lives affected by that. So many. And a lot of the press, particularly a certain theater columnist, gossip yes, columnist, yes, yes. were so unreasonably cruel vicious 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 word vicious vicious without even really good reporting mm -hmm. you know without even uh just jumping to conclusions making assumptions humiliating people publicly um in fact i for a while i was going to write a book about it because i was kind of on the inside and i had access to everyone and i even on a trip to London when my son was in drama school, met with Michael Blakemore, the director, and Christopher Isherwood, who translated the, the lyrics. Um, 
and I wrote the first chapter or two, and I, I finally came to a point where I thought, I can't do this. This is so, this is so painful. I don't want to revisit this. Uh, so that one's pretty easy for that. That question is easy for me to answer. The question, what got you through it? What got me through it? Um, <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, it, it never occurred to me that, that the, I, that I had the option of not getting through it. I mean, you, wow. you get over, you get over disappointment, you mm -hmm. get over pain, you get over humiliation in time. You know, I was, I was in a very large boat with a lot of other people. Mm. Um, I, I have friends. I honestly believe, yes. Yeah, I, I know. That's I mean, I honestly believe to this day that the, the producers were entirely blameless, that they were victims of first this con artist and then the anonymous sender of the emails that, that ultimately sank the ship. Um, but, you know, a con artist is called a con artist because it's short for confidence and their expertise is winning your confidence by saying the things to you you want to hear. And, um, you know, like Bernie Madoff. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, uh, we I've got friends here. We've got friends that have been uh, victims of that. I mean, I've got dear friends that were wiped out by Bernie Madoff. Uh, I uh, I can't go into a huge, but I've been conned in this business myself. Uh, aspects of my life that were completely uh, taken away from me. And uh, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll get together someday and you and your wife will come for dinner uh, with uh, Dickens and uh, we'll, we're going to have a nice dinner. We're going <laughs> to, we're going to be great. We're going to commiserate, and uh, we're going to uh, toast to the fact that that's all behind us. Um, yeah, I feel I've had a great life and a great career, and I'm extremely grateful. You know, were there some downs along with the ups? Yeah, of course. But, but far more back, ups. We're going to go back somewhat to where we began tonight, and the question is: What do you consider the most valuable quality in a friend? In a friend. Um, steadfastness or support. You know, I, I have just a handful of really close friends that I knew if I were ever truly in need or in trouble and I called them, they would drop everything and they would be there. Mm -hmm. Same here. Absolutely. Uh, one more page for my calendar. And it says so many helpful, and this comes in uh, uh, continuing, so many helpful people have come into my life as instruments of grace. They inspire me to be an instrument of grace for others. Uh, so today I'll watch out for people acting as instruments of grace in my life. I'll also see if life gives me the opportunity to be an instrument of grace or unexpected helpful assistance to someone else. Do you feel that you've had an opportunity again in the last week to do this for others? In the last week, oh my gosh! I think your weeks are much fuller than mine are, Richard. 
I take the dog for a walk. I, uh, Those are moments of grace. Well, they're grace for the dog. I, yeah. I try to yes. give give him happiness. Um, oh, dear. Um, in the past week. Well, again, you know, today I made a point of saying to my wife, we should call our good friend Rob and see how he's doing. Um, his sister has been very ill. Uh, he's been under a lot of pressure. You know, I really want to reach out and make sure he's okay, find out how she's doing, um, and show friendship and support and caring. And this is my last question for you. What uh, would it mean for you? I I'm going to expand this. I won't make it about the last uh, week. I'll make it about the last month. Thank <laughs> what would it mean for you to be more curious in the next, well, let's, I was going to say in the next week, in the next month, what would it mean for you to be even more curious in the next month? You know, that's a very funny question. My wife and I watch a lot of Masterpiece Theater, and they have these recurring ads by Viking Cruise Ship. Yes. And we have a running joke that the, the head of the company, who's Scandinavian, uh, is always saying, be curious, be curious. <laughs> so that's like a running joke between us. Uh, we sort of refer to being curious often. Um I'd like to be open to new adventures, new opportunities. Uh, as, as the song goes, say yes. Um, I, I feel I've been very fortunate uh, thus far in my life that things have come up that I hadn't anticipated or planned on. And I realized that they, they were an open door and I was not afraid to go through. So I, I hope I hope that'll continue. That's great. Uh, don't go anywhere. We're going to give away a book. And then I've got a, a couple of uh, closing remarks that I want to say. And we'll see who's going to get our book tonight. Uh, and uh, see who the winner is. Uh, the names keep popping up. Uh, Tasha Lombardi, once again. Uh, she shows up and she wins. Uh, hey. so, uh, Tasha, just uh, uh, again, send me a note after the show. And I'll make sure uh, to put you and Peter in touch with each other. And uh, he will send you a copy of the book. Uh, Peter, don't go anywhere for a moment. I just autographed. Uh, autographed. Uh, and uh, Tasha, I can't wait to see uh, what uh, wonderful shows you will be uh, producing in the future. So anyway, uh, I want to thank everybody uh, for being here. Again, the word that I uh, phrase that I chose today, personal fulfillment. This show gives me personal fulfillment because I get a chance to meet uh, wonderful people like Peter. Uh, last Saturday night, uh, our dear friend, Anarine, uh, we went out to dinner. First time in two years that I'd been to Joe Allen's. So to sit down and break bread was so wonderful. The only thing missing that night uh, was meeting your wife. So I cannot wait for that opportunity. And I hope that that is in our future. And that would give me personal fulfillment. Uh, and uh, Jason, I, I, you know, I, I feel like I want to get on the a plane and fly to London 
so that I can uh, see your son uh, perform. Oh, thank you. And, uh, you know, in continued success uh, with all that he's doing. And uh, obviously you did a great job. So the <laughs> fact that it's going to continue to go on. Um, personal fulfillment, uh, as he just said, uh, the song Say Yes, Life keep hap- uh, Keeps Happening Every Day, Say Yes. Um, and it reminds me of an interview that I heard, this is probably going back 10 years ago uh, when William Shatner was turning 80, I think at the time, and he was being interviewed. Uh, he, he was doing a one-man show on Broadway. He was doing the Priceline.com uh, commercials at the time. He had a new book out, uh, and it was like a, a perfect storm of all these incredible things that were all happening at the same time, and he was on the Larry King show. And Larry King said, what do you attribute to your success? And he said, I get out of the house. Uh, he said, nowadays we live in a world where there's an app for everything. You want dinner? You hit an app. Uh, you want to hire maid service? You hit an app. Uh, you want any sexual proclivity? You hit an app. He <laughs> said, it's all there. You don't have to leave your house for anything. But he said, every incredible thing that has happened in my life and career happened because of someone that I met along the way. And every time I sit down to do these shows, I learn not only about the people that I'm sitting down and having a conversation with, but I learn things about myself as well. So I thank you for that, Peter. Um, I also want to thank everybody for being here tonight. It's a Saturday night. You could have been at the theater tonight. You could have been watching uh, Masterpiece Theater. You could have been doing anything else, but you chose to be here with us. And in the theater and in life, I don't take it lightly when you say yes to showing up. So thank you for being here. Um, As always, please leave a comment on YouTube after the show. Share this with your friends. Please let others know about the show. Um, I will say this. My numbers are going up. And it's because of your comments, because people are seeing these comments and share it. Um, I also end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. What I want you all to do after tonight's show is I want you to go to your Facebook friends list uh, before you sign off of Facebook tonight. And I want you to reach out to the seventh name that pops up. And I want you to reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. Now, if that person is in the theater, I want you to order two copies of Broadway General Manager. If they are not in the theater, I want you to order A Dog's Life. And I want you to get one for yourself, and I want you to order a copy for your friend. And I want you to inscribe it and let them know in the inscription what they mean to you because it's important for us to tell each other now. Peter referred to that in tonight's show, and it's important that we continue to do so, uh, because none of us are promised tomorrow. And as my dear friend, Sean Moniger always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And you never know what someone else is going through right now. But I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. I'm going to leave uh, the show. I'm going to leave the screen and I'm going to give you the final word. 
Anything you want to say about anything that we talked about tonight that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, uh, any message that you want to leave everyone with, I hope you've had as much fun tonight as I have, and you're always welcome on this platform, uh, and I hope that you will stay in touch. And uh, and don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will start to roll. Thank you, and everybody, make it a better tomorrow. It all starts right here. Thank you. And Peter, it's all Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Just had a great time. And thank you for having me as your guest. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.